from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 72 with guest Paul Randall, recorded live Tuesday, August 26th, 2008. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You're listening to Run As Radio. I'm your host, Richard Campbell, and with me is always my co-host, Greg Hughes. That's me. Hey, Richard. How are you today? I'm excellent, man. The good news is we're going back to Barcelona. Yep. They're going back in uh, November-ish. That's right. First week of November is the IT week in uh, TechEd, so we'll be back down there again. Speaker Idol's on. Uh, we're going to run a contest uh, leading up to the conference, so it's the, the full meal deal. I got the whole deal worked out uh, just this week, so we're going for sure. Great show, great city, and lots and lots to learn. And I think it's the last one, too. They're going to go somewhere else next year. That's what they've been saying, so uh-huh. it'll be interesting to see what happens next. You bet. All right. Let's put that aside and dig straight into our show. We've got a rare show here, a very special show here, because Mr. Paul Randall's on the show, and he's flying without a net. That's right. No Kim trip to cover for him. (laughs) He's by himself. I don't need backup. It's terrifying, I know. (laughs) Wait a minute. I am here, just so everybody knows. Oh, so you're holding his hand. I am. (laughs) You don't sound well, Kim. You don't so sound scary. well. It's so scary being on with you guys. Very first time. Remember the very first time you outed us? Yes, it's true. It's true. That was on DNR, but... DNR. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do I need a bio for you, Paul? I don't think so. It's the guy who wrote uh, DBCC. What more do you need to know? <laughs> What's really amazing is how this, this siren has conspired to draw you away from from Microsoft and, you know pull you into this little circle of SQL skills. It's great. I love it. Uh, <laughs> you know, best move I ever made was going to Microsoft, and then the, the best move I ever made after that was leaving it. Nice. <laughs> well, and you did some great things. I mean, you were there for quite a while. That's more, what, 13 years? No, no, not, not that long. Nine years. I loved it. I, I really enjoyed being at Microsoft. Um, you know, I did the whole developer, developer lead, you know, multidisciplinary management. And then the reason I left, actually, was nothing wrong with Microsoft at all, apart from I couldn't do the job that I really wanted to do, which was um, the job I really wanted to do was doing uh, teaching and conferences and stuff full-time, and, of course, doing it with Kimberly. Right. So I couldn't, couldn't do that at Microsoft, so I had to leave. And now you're doing that, exactly that. You guys do how many shows a year? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, we're going to be in Barcelona with you guys, for right. sure, so we'll hopefully awesome. do another, another uh, run-as. Are we, yeah, we have run-as today, aren't we? Yes. Another run-as um, there. So, I don't know how many shows, two connections... Two tech heads, at least four. No, one more. We're doing it at five, five or six. And don't yeah, you do we're doing pass this year as well? For the first. Jeez, can you believe this is the first time I'm ever doing pass? That's incredible. <laughs> the SQL team for nine years, and I never did pass. There never was always pass. something going on that, that that meant I couldn't do it. But this year it's in Redmond, and we're here, so we can't. We don't really have an excuse. That's that's awesome. I should pop down for that too. It's going to be cool. We're doing a, a precon actually for involuntary DBAs. Involuntary DBAs. That's a great term. I always called the guy who was standing close to the server the last time the last guy quit. Yeah, I mean, that's how it works a lot of the time. And then, you know, these poor guys, they, they don't know uh, anything about databases or, or, you know, effective maintenance and stuff. So we like to help them out. Yeah, no question. 
In fact, talking of which, um, I just had a, an article published in TechNet Magazine for August 2008, and it's on effective database maintenance for involuntary DBAs. Nice. A whole bunch of, of tips and tricks and, and stuff. So, so I'm smitten with this topic, the involuntary DBA. Let's just stay on it for a while. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the article. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, does this ha- do you find this really happens that much? I used to call it a gag that, oh, you're the DBA because you were standing close to the oh. server when the last guy quit, but it really I've, happens that way? Oh, my goodness. I've seen it, it happen. It happens all the time. That's you, amazing. I've, I must have had, I don't know, a couple of emails every single day since this article has been published saying, oh, thank you, thank you for, for doing this because there's no information out there for involuntary DBAs. It's the little shops, right? Just a few people working there. There's nobody, quote, a DBA per se. Yeah, or even, you know, inside Microsoft, because we teach classes for Microsoft too, we have um, testers that are suddenly responsible for running tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tests, and they've got to keep track of all the results. Where are they going to keep track? Of course, in SQL Server. Right. So suddenly you've got a tester that's a DBA. Just like that. Yep. Yeah. But no, know, it's, it's very, I've... very prevalent, especially, you know, having people costs a lot of money. And um, more and more people are having databases because the, the volume of data is rising, so they've got to store it somewhere. And if they don't want to um, actually hire a DBA, then either a developer or a manager or just somebody else gets to manage the database suddenly. Well, and I think the other thing that's interesting is that you end I'm sorry, and I'm not running at 100% today, which is why you guys probably should mute me again in a moment. But <laughs> I fit into your jar, dear. I'm just going to disregard that comment. Okay, all right, so funny story. So there's a, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin comes in to his mother and says, Mom, Mom, can I get paid for collecting spit? And she goes, ah, gross. No, of course you can't, Calvin. So he kind of looks downtrodden and says, oh, I've got a jar for you to wash. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kimberly. She has her spit jar. <laughs> I do not have if, a spit jar. But I do to- wish I could make money from this, let me tell you, because <laughs> I am generating a massive amount of phlegm. So. <laughs> if, if you listen in the background carefully when I'm speaking, you can every so often you'll hear a ding as something hits the spittoon. <laughs> nice. So anyway, as I was saying, sometimes what also happens, and I think um, this is really common, is SQL Server is very easy to install. It's very easy to create a database. It's very easy to create tables. And even when you have DBAs that even, you know, know a fair amount, at least the basics about SQL Server, they might not know a lot of the tips and trips. Trip, I can't even say that. Tips, tips and trips. And <laughs> the tips and tricks that are necessary to make applications, especially as Paul mentioned, as the data grows and the number of users grow, really scale. And that's kind of what we try to focus on is, you know, the kinds of things that, you don't need to know every little nitty-gritty detail. I mean, Paul and I thrive on knowing the 300, 400, 500 level depth, but an involuntary DBA really needs to know kind of the, the core amount of information that they can use to make their environment more effective, more efficient, more available, but again, without knowing all the internals. I, one of our good friends, and, and you know Brian as well, and, and I don't know if I'm going to out him on this one, but <laughs> um, he's been talking about doing a... A book that's related to kind of busy people's guides, you know, where, again, you don't need all the internals, you just need the core components to get something done. And I just, I think it's it's brilliant. It's, it's all around this involuntary DBA or busy person's guide where you can really get only the, you know, the distilled information you need to do something better. Okay, I'm going to mute myself. Oh, yeah, I thought this was my show. Yeah, geez. 
<laughs> it's a community state. Yeah, I agree with everything she just said. Exactly. <laughs> You're married to her. You have no choice. I know. I have to say that. She beats me otherwise. It's terrible. <laughs> <sighs> no, we should not go any further with that conversation. No, let's let that go. I, I thought about it, but I thought, no, 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 no. This is too public. So Yeah. You know, so, I've been the guy. I've been the guy who's created involuntary DBAs before, and I've been shunned for it. Um, I guess for financial reasons, sometimes I, I've been in that small to mid-sized organization where you have to do that. Yeah, there's really, really. Yeah, no other I, I mean, it's basically it comes down to money, right? You know, not wanting to, or or maybe even not knowing that they need a DBA. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of the the problems that we see are because somebody's managing a database and they don't know all the different things that they have to do to get a database running properly. They don't really know that they need DBA skills or an actual DBA. So let's start at the beginning. What is the core skills? What are the things people must know now that they've realized they're a DBA? Oh, okay. So, so there's a bunch of different stuff. And, it, and what it basically is, is, is the stuff that I put in the article, is knowing how to keep a database healthy and be able to recover when a disaster happens. Right. The, you know, a disaster always does happen. So you're talking about stuff like um, bullet points, right? Managing data and transaction log files, eliminating index fragmentation, uh, making sure you've got up-to-date statistics, running CheckDB every so often so you know when you've got corruption, putting on page protection so that you, you can actually detect corruption, and then having a good backup strategy. So, I mean, these are the, the you know, kind of top five things. Isn't that just the SQL maintenance wizard right there? You can use the database maintenance wizard to do a lot of this stuff as well, um, but it's far better to kind of do it yourself. Okay. Uh, don't even get me started on this one, actually. I, I, I kind of love and hate the database maintenance plan wizard all at the same time, and I, I don't mean to sound so negative, because I, I really do like the simplicity with which you can create, in some cases, very complex jobs using the database maintenance plan wizard. But my problem with the database maintenance plan wizard is that if you don't know what you're doing, it can actually get you in more trouble than should. And the big problem is just related to the sheer combination of options you can create and the kind of sledgehammer approach they take to maintaining things. Like if you say that you want to rebuild all of your indexes, it rebuilds all of your indexes whether they're fragmented or not. Right. And then, you know, so there's the sledgehammer approach. And then the other problem is the combination of features. If you say to rebuild indexes, and then update stats, you could end up updating your statistics twice because rebuilding your indexes updates stats with the equivalent of a full scan, and then you update stats again, which may in fact not use a full scan, so you end up updating your stats twice and meet up with less effective statistics. Nice. So, I, I mean, if you don't really know... What and see, this is my real. It basically gives you called a wizard. It, it right? gives you no guidance on what the good things are. You should do right. what the combination should be. I mean, it, it lets you run database shrinks. So you, I mean, every so often I'll see. In fact, very commonly I'll see a, a maintenance plan that has somebody doing a rebuild of all the indexes, and of course, rebuilding an index has to create the new index before dropping the old one. So right. it could end up growing the data files, and then uh, the person will say, "Oh, well, I've, I want that space back, so I'll run a shrink straight afterwards." And, of course, shrink gets the space back, but it fragments the indexes again. (laughs) There are some game kind of thing. We're back to square one. But, I mean, how would somebody know this? How would somebody know that these things are a problem unless they know a little bit about managing a database and what all this stuff does? Well, and so sort of the point of the the issue here with the maintenance wizard is there's really no guidance that lets you know that there's consequences to the combinations of things you might do. Right. And if you look in books online about database maintenance, 
it tells you it tells you how to start the database maintenance plan wizard. Right. That's it. I mean, there's, there's no guidance on what you should do to maintain a database. And I mean, don't get me wrong, Books Online is great. There's a lot of very useful information in there. Um, and for some of the topics, there are kind of conceptual guidance, but that maintenance is not one of them. And maintenance is really one of the most critical things. I often find that my the DBA in a small organization is also a developer, and he tends to flip switches on SQL Server for performance ones. And the one that gives me the biggest chills is simple recovery. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes. Don't get it. Yep. Do you want to turn this into a backup and restore? Well, I'm, I mean, if we talk <laughs> about the fundamental thing that an, an involuntary DBA needs to know, it's the consequences of backup and restore, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and recovery models as well. So here, here's the lowdown. So in simple recovery model, you can only take full backups. You can't take log backups. Right. Which means that you can't do what's called point-in-time recovery. Okay, so if you have a disaster and your last full backup was uh, at midnight the day before, then you've lost all of the work from that last full backup, okay? Because you're in simple recovery model. You don't Period. have any log backups. There's okay? nothing else you can do. That data's gone. Nothing else you can do, right? Um, with the full recovery model, you can take log backups, so you can do up-to-the-minute recovery. However, once you start into the full recovery model and you start taking backups, then you're responsible for managing the transaction log. And this is what bites even more people, is that... You, you go into the full recovery model, and it's, it's actually in what's called a pseudo-simple state until you take that first full backup. And after you take your first full backup, then you're telling SQL Server, okay, I'm now going to manage the transaction log, which means you're responsible for taking log backups. So why is this an issue? The issue is that the log will not truncate. In other words, it won't kind of clear out all of the transactions it no longer needs, even though they've been committed, until right. a log backup has happened. Okay, because you're in the full recovery model, you're saying, I want to be able to save all this transaction log in backups so that I can do point-in-time recovery. So the problem people get into is they get into the full recovery model and someone says, oh, let's take a backup. So they take their backup and then they don't take any log backups. And so the log continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And it'll grow forever until it runs out of space. Um, there's a story that, that Kimberly and I both like to tell of a customer about a year ago now that emailed, actually emailed one of the two of us and said, I have a 10-gig database, and I have a 987-gigabyte log file. Awesome. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that is the poster child for, for log management and why you should do it. <laughs> Something tells me shrink log wouldn't help him. Yeah. So, I mean, and then, um, I mean, uh, I guess the other thing to say is when I said truncating the log, people get really confused about what these terms mean in terms of the log file. Truncating the log just means that SQL Server no longer needs that transaction log. Right. Okay. So that means that the, the transaction log, as you're continuing to write transactions into it, can kind of wrap around. It's a circular, it's basically a circular file. You could think of it like that. And then overwrite the stuff that's no longer needed. Okay. Um, you can't actually, if you have one of these logs that's grown in size and you take a, a log backup, so you're able to then um, not have to have it grow anymore. The only way to actually shrink the size of the log file down again is to use a command called dbcc shrink file. Okay, there's no other way to physically alter the size of the, the log file. Right. Truncating the log does not mean shrinking the file itself. So, that, again, that's something that, that confuses a lot of people. But, yeah, I mean, database backups and, and log backups and figuring out what your backup strategy is, is it's, it's hard. Um, but I think it's a very key point there. If you're in full recovery mode, you better be taking log backups. If you're absolutely. not taking log backups, why are you in full recovery mode? Yeah. But then... You know, once you start getting into log backups, you then have the problem of um, when you come to have to do a restore, 
how many backups do you have to restore? Right. You know, if you're, if you're taking, say, weekly full backups and you're doing a log backup every half an hour, then that's an awful lot of log backups you're going to have to restore if you crash just before your next full backup. So then you, know, you could complicate your backup strategy a bit more by throwing in what's called differential backups, which are you know, all of the, uh, the data pages that have changed since the last full backup. And that can, that can serve as a way of short-circuiting your, your um, recovery path. You know, taking that same example of a weekly full backup, you could add in a daily differential backup and, and continue your, your log backups every half an hour. And then if you crash just before your, your next full backup again, the worst possible scenario, then what you would do is restore your full backup, restore the very last differential backup you took, okay? because they're, they are, um, uh, they're since the last full. Okay? Right. They're not kind of iterative. They're not since the last differential. And then just restore the log backups for that day. Um, but that does mean you've got a more complicated backup strategy. So, I mean, when I'm, when I'm lecturing and, and you know, teaching people how to come up with a backup strategy, I don't say figure out what your backup strategy should be. I always say figure out what your restore strategy is. What do you want to be able to restore? And how long do you want your restores to take? And then figure out what backups you need to take to be able to do your restore strategy. It's how long are you prepared to be down and how much data are you prepared to lose? Basically, yeah. And that's, and that's the two... Um, SLA, service level agreements, that's the two main ones is, you know, your, your maximum downtime and your maximum allowable data loss. Right. And of course, every business is going to say, you know, zero downtime, zero data loss. And that's really hard. That's well, very, it can be done. It's just very expensive. It can be done and it means throwing money at it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you want zero downtime, zero data loss, you want to get yourself a DBA. Sure. Now you can afford a DBA. If you can afford the equipment it's going to take to do that, you can afford the person to operate it. So beyond backup, other key skills for the involuntary DBA? Um, let me see. Um, well, I guess there's being able to um, figure out what the, uh, the management of data and log files should be. Okay? There's a thing you can do called setting auto-grow, which is when a file runs out of space, is it able to automatically add space onto the file without everything coming to a, a grinding halt? And um, we always say, you know, you don't want to rely on autogrow, but you should have it turned on anyway, okay? Right. You should fig- figure out what the sizes of your data files and log files are going to be, and that, that's easier said than done, are going to be, and pre-allocate them yourself. But have autogrow turned on just in case, okay, a kind of emergency uh, fallback measure. Now, growing the, the files yourself, the reason you want to do that is because if you let autogrow repeatedly grow the files, then you're going to end up with what's called fragmentation, both at the, uh, the file system level, and you might end up with fragmentation within the data files as well, depending on your access plan. And we're going to get to that in a, in a minute. But at the, the data file level, if you have fragmentation in the file system, that means that if you're scanning through the file, then the disk heads are going to have to jump around to get all the different portions of that file back. Okay? So it's going to slow things down. You're going to add in seek time as the disk head jumps to a new portion of the file rather than smoothly scanning through, through uh, the file itself. So by, auto grow, well, sorry, by manually growing the file yourself, then you can say, okay, I want to take my one gigabyte file and grow it by 500 meg, say, or take my terabyte size file, although if you're talking terabytes, you've got to have a DBA. Okay? Right. Um, take your terabyte file and grow it manually by, say, another terabyte so that you're you're coping with all of the extra data that you, you think is going to happen over the next, say, six months or so, rather than having auto-grow on, which will, um, depending on how you've configured it, maybe grow by, say, uh, 10 meg chunks, which is going to cause horrible fragmentation. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Yeah, no question. And I think the default setting on auto grow is ten percent. It's a percentage, which which is which is horrible because um, if you if you do have a very very large database, then you're gonna your grow is going to be very very large as well. And um, okay, so this this is a nice segue into a thing called instant initialization. Now in in 2000 and before, every time you create uh, or expand or restore a database and the file isn't already there, the, the file gets created and it has to be what's called zero initialized. And what that means is basically going into every single page and writing it full of zeros. It overwrites everything that was there before. Now, think about doing that for a, uh, a multi-gigabyte file. That's going to be pretty slow. Sure. Okay? Now, that could be fine when you're just doing the create or when you're doing an alter database to add a bit more space to the file. But what about in a disaster recovery situation where you've lost the entire database and you're having to restore it from scratch? The first phase of restore is always, if the files don't exist, go and create them. So if you've got this multi-gig database that you're restoring, the first thing restore is going to do is go and create the file and zero it all out. So that zeroing adds to the downtime you've got, because you can't carry on with restore until you've created the file. So that's, that's on 2000. Um, on 2005, there's this thing called instant initialization, where you can say to SQL Server, um, by, by, it's a really funky way you turn this on as well, you say to SQL Server, um, I'm okay with the fact that there could be stuff there that was on the disk before. Okay? Right. Um, what I want you to do is just never zero initialize, which means that you can create multi-gig files like almost instantaneously within uh, a second or so. Now, that also cuts down on your restore time as well. Okay? Now, um, enabling instant initialization. There's, there's no way to turn it on inside SQL Server. There's no way to turn it off inside SQL Server. The way that you enable this is, and you can see this in books online. You can go and figure this out for yourself after listening to this, this show. You, um, you get the service account that's running SQL Server, and you, you give it a permission called Perform Volume Maintenance Tasks using the local security policy editor. Then you restart SQL Server, and suddenly it will start doing zero initialization, instant initialization. Okay, very funky. Um, now, I used to think that there wasn't a way to tell from inside SQL Server that, um, that you had this on, but you actually can. You can use XP command shell to, to go out to the file system and, hey, Kimberly, what's the command that you have to, what's the command that you issue to, to figure out what privileges you have? Oh, it's who am I? You do who am I slash priv, and it lists, all the, um, it lists all the permissions that you've got. But if you do it from inside SQL Server, it will do it as if it's the SQL service account. Oh, cool. So it'll tell you all the permissions that the SQL server service account has. And so you can actually figure out whether a server that you've just taken over has got this stuff turned on or not from inside SQL Server. And that's pretty cool, because if you're not a box admin, then you're not going to be able to go out to the machine itself and, um, and look in the security policy editor. You've only got SQL Server and, and a connection to SQL Server. And I actually just blogged about that. If you search for um, how can you tell whether instant initialization is turned on on my blog, you'll, you'll find a script that I, I just did that, that has that in. Very cool. So let me see. Popping my stack. Okay, instant initialization of data files. Log files can never use instant initialization. Okay? And the reason that they can never use instant initialization is the way that the, the log is actually used inside SQL Server. So I mentioned earlier on that the transaction log file is essentially circular, which means once SQL Server gets to the end of the file, if it's able to, it will it'll kind of wrap itself around and start writing log records from the, the start again. Here's the catch. When you crash... There's nothing persisted anywhere that says what the last log record that was written was. Okay, SQL Server knows when the last checkpoint was, so it knows when it has to, where it has to start recovery from in the log, but it doesn't know where it ends. Right. The way that SQL Server does this is 
every time it writes a log record, it writes in the actual log buffer itself, it writes a, a couple of parity bits, okay, either 1, 0, or 0, 1. When SQL Server gets to the end of the log file and it goes to start the log file from the beginning again, it flips the parity bits. Okay, so it knows that it's overwriting old log file, old log records. In a disaster recovery situation, it'll run recovery until it finds a log record that's out of sequence in terms of parity bits. Now, this is cool. And the reason that zero initialization has to be done for the log is because it's possible that data that was on the disk before the log file was created over it could look like it had the correct parity bits. Right. And so the, the log system might try and recover it and, of course, crash. So that's, that's why you can't use um, instant initialization for the transaction log. Well, that makes sense. Kind of a bit of a long monologue there on, on <laughs> <laughs> initialization. That's good, it, though. You it's know a... what we're like when we get started. <laughs> sure, but these are, are key issues. Um, what about instrumentation or notification of failures? Oh, great point. So um, you might have turned on you know, kind of page protection to, to catch corruptions when they're happening. Yeah. And you might be running uh, jobs in the background or something, but how are you actually going to know whether something goes wrong? Well, um, the way that I recommend doing it is to set alerts. Okay? So you could set uh, agent alerts. And there's, a, there's actually a, a few that I recommend setting. Um, one of them is uh, an agent alert for every error message with a severity of 19 or higher, because these are all bad things happening to the system. Right. Um, you especially want severity 24 because that catches I.O. Uh, errors that are happening. In other words, your database is becoming corrupt. Right. Okay. Um, but there's one funky one, which is when SQL Server reads a page from uh, a database file, if it actually, actually has to go out and do a physical read, if it gets an error back from the operating system or if it reads the page in and determines there's something wrong with the page itself, it'll retry the read three more times. Okay. okay. So you get four tries. If on the fourth try um, the read actually fails, then the query will see an error message as usual, like an 823 or an 824, and the connection will get broken. If the query, if the if the, one of the read retries actually works, and so on the second, third, or fourth try the page is read correctly, then the query just carries on as normal. Okay, nobody knows anything has happened except in the error log, there is an informational message. All right, error 825, informational message, severity 10 put into the error log saying, we had to use read retry to read this page. Now, a translation of this is, your I.O. subsystem is starting to fail, and we're finding corruption. But it's only a severity 10 message in the error log. Okay? So unless you've got something that's scanning the error log for these, you're never going to know that your I.O. subsystem is starting to fail. So I always say that you should have a, an agent alert on error number 825 because that's just as bad in my mind as a corruption. Well, and it's, it, this is a warning. It's an opportunity for you to do something about it before it gets worse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and you might say, wow, that's kind of strange. Why did they put that in? Well, the reason that they put that in was Exchange used to have a similar problem where you know, a large amount of information, a large amount of data, and a problem happens, and so it would fail fast. And so they'd uh, product support and the dev teams would have lots of people calling up saying, oh, no, I've got this problem, can you help me out? And it, invariably, it's, it's corruption. It's a, you know, either a hardware or a software issue. It's not SQL Server. It's not Exchange. And so Exchange put, that, put the kind of read-retry in, and they found a dramatic drop in the, um, the downtime of customers and the uh, support costs of the product. And so the SQL Server team decided to do the same thing as well. 
So it's actually something that, that I don't agree with. I would prefer that SQL Server did a fail fast and failed straight away. However, I, I can see the argument for having it carry on as long as there is a nice warning notification with like kind of red spangly lights going on saying your I.O. subsystem's going wrong. So the, you know, the thing I don't agree with is the fact that you only get the severity 10 message in the error log saying we had to do one of these. And it's well worth catching. So when they said we're, we're setting this up inside Performance Monitor to, to catch these events, how are we configuring this? Oh, um, so you, you, um, you go into, if you're over in Object Explorer in um, Management Studio, and you go to um, SQL Agent. But let me just get my uh, Management Studio up. So you go over to... These are agent alerts. Yeah. They're the, the SQL Server agent account or the SQL Server service account. Okay. So there's actually, there's actually a blog post that I did about configuring um, agent alerts. So if you search my blog, you'll find it under the tools category. But basically what you do, go to Management Studio, um, connect to your instance in Object Explorer, go down and expand SQL Server agent. And then inside there, there's a, a, another little area called alerts. And you would right-click that and say new alert. And you can define... Um, what it is that you want to alert on, and you can also define um, how the alert actually kind of surfaces. So what it's worth doing is having a database mail account set up for um, your, your operator or your DBAs and have the alert, and my laptop seems to have crashed here, um, and have the alert get uh, emailed or even paged to the DBA, and you can configure all that from, from inside this little wizard. Great. So, the, so that we're actually able to receive email from our SQL Server warning us yep. about its problems. Yep. Yep. So you can you can do email pager or you can do a net send, but they beware of the net send. The net send only works if the messenger service is running on the machine and the machine is connected to uh, an internet port. Otherwise, the net send won't work. So it's always worth doing um, email as well or even pager. Before we before we run up against time here, real quick. Um, a little bit of a sidebar question, but I think DBAs are quite often misunderstood or difficult to understand. Yeah. So for the trick is to marry somebody that's also a DBA. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Go on. Maybe if you could toss out there, what's the one thing that maybe IT management or non-DBA personnel need to understand about DBAs, and also what's the one thing that developers need to understand about DBAs? Okay, so the one thing that I would say, the one thing that IT managers and, and so on need to understand about DBAs is that if you don't give them the funds necessary um, to be able to set their systems up to have zero data loss and zero downtime, there's no way that they're going to be able to do it. Okay, there's no magic to, to having um, a system set up to, to not lose data. Do you know how many people you just made really happy by saying DBAs should get more money? I <laughs> <laughs> think that's stupid. This, <laughs> either that or you set them up to be very badly table, frustrated. Yes. Paul Randall. You can thank me. I'll take a cut of your salary increases. No, no seriously. I mean, um, DBAs are, are terribly undervalued, and they're usually kind of very stressed out and overworked. It's, and typically it's common for there to be 100 databases plus per DBA in large organizations. And... Um, and the, you said this very right at the beginning as well. And everybody expects zero data loss and zero yeah. recovery time, but yeah. aren't willing to pay for it. Yeah. Oh, so here's a good point. If your, your managers have asked you to put together a kind of high availability strategy, and mm -hmm. they want zero downtime and zero data loss, and they want, say, a redundant site, and your budget is, I don't know, $5,000, okay? There, <laughs> there's absolutely no way. The onus is on you as the DBA to push back immediately right. that you exactly. can't meet those requirements. Right. Rather than just going away and doing it and having a disaster happen 
and not being able to meet the downtime and data loss requirements. Because your management, and I've seen this happen, and I've actually seen people lose their jobs because of this. Well, the line I've used is, hope is not a data recovery strategy. Uh, Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so that's the DBA one. Greg also asked about developers. Developers need to understand the effect of the features that they're using on the database once it goes into production. That's the biggest thing I would say. So what's the the best way to do that? um, to, To test with a production workload. And that's, again, easier said than done. But the only way that you're going to figure out that you're not going to cause um, massive data growth, massive fragmentation, massive amounts of blocking or deadlocking is to actually, you know, put your application into, into a production circumstance and, and run it. Okay? And don't expect, developers don't expect DBAs to, to pick up all the pieces and have to manage your applications if they do cause all these horrible problems. And that's, that's very typically what happens. How often do you see the database being neglected when it comes like in design time before an application is built? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I'm not going to say all the time, but it's very common that people don't take into account the, uh, the, the effect of features that they're using and designs that they're doing. So the database has got to be part of the whole QA process if we're really going to understand how things behave. I mean, you, you, ask the, um, you ask the CEO of many companies, what's your most important asset apart from people? Because okay, they're all going to say people, right? It's going to be data. Information, right. yep. Information, data, and it all gets stored in databases. Well, you know, whether it's SQL Server, whether it's Oracle, whether it's DB2, it's, it's all the same. And they all have this, exactly the same issues with DBAs. So it ought to have us some love. Yeah. You'd think. Give the DBAs some love if you're listening. <laughs> Even the involuntary ones. <laughs> Even the invo- Well, especially the involuntary ones. Yeah, they're, the uh, ones that are, they're the ones that are in the most likely, uh, most likely to, to get knocked upside the head kind of situation, right. aren't they? Although, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in, in this show... Um, is is relevant to you know regular DBAs as well because people migrate over from different um, operating systems and they maybe have you know different habits or bad habits or they've picked up misconceptions and things so yeah you know, works for everybody sure great info Paul I think we're out of time cool well no it we can fly, do it flies by when I'm talking to you it Bob <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks very much for coming on the show thanks to you. Oh, no worries. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.